0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Downright Upright Show, the place to go to hear out loud and proud what Minnesotans are thinking. And I am your host, Philip Anthony. I'm so glad you can join us today, and I hope you're all doing fantabulous. Fantabulous is my little word, fantastic and fabulous, put together twice as nice, right? My special, special guest today, I am so excited about having him on the show today, is LGBTQ plus advocate, the founder and curator of the Queer Armenian Library, and the host of the podcast This Queer Book Saved My Life, which I love, J.P. Der
1: Bagahosian. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Close. Okay, so it's uh, bogo, like buy one, get one, C <laughs> as in I see you, and then jan, like jan from Sweden.
0: Okay, Bog- Bog-
1: bogo, see jan. Perfect. Bogosian.
0: Yeah. Dear Bogosian. Oh, my God. That's easy. Yeah. See, when you when you learn your phonics in right. kindergarten, it helps. And now
1: that's your first word that you've spoken <laughs> in Western Armenian. <laughs> oh,
0: thanks. <laughs> Great. By the way, I identify as gay and my pronouns are he and him. And how would you like me to identify you and what are you on the LGBTQ spectrum so the guests, the um, listeners would know about it? Yeah. So I identify as queer. And I use he, they pronouns. All righty. Thank you for that. Before we talk about your advocacy for the LGBTQ community and your amazing library and podcast, I always like to start by asking about your
1: beginnings. So where were you born and raised, went to school and all that fun stuff? So I am Armenian American and my Armenian family... Um, Ended up in France after the genocide. They were on work visa, refugee visas. My dad's family is from northwest lower Michigan. So if you look at the palm of your right hand and you tap the top of your pinky, that's where <laughs> I was born. And, but my okay. mom's family, the Armenian side, uh, is still in France. So by the time I was like eight, nine months old, I was already on a plane over uh, to visit the family. And I bounced back and forth. Uh, going back between uh, both continents, if you will, and or, or family from over there was coming over here. So it was a very uh, multilingual, intercultural, travel-all-the-time household that I grew up in.
0: And is Ar- Armenia independent now? I just – I'm ignorant on, on my – uh, world history. No, absolutely. No, to yeah, school absolutely.
1: Since
0: I was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only 15. No, just kidding. Um, uh, <laughs> when did you uh, 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 tell us a little bit about that? About Armenia and when it became independent and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, Armenia is a very ancient country. It's one of the oldest in uh, the world. Goes all the way back to like classical history. And I'm not going to take you all the way through that, but um, it was part of the uh, Russian and Ottoman empires, and then it was independent after World War One, and then the Soviets uh, invaded and took over, and it was one of the socialist republics of the USSR, and then it gained its independence in the early – it was 1991, as did Artsakh. Uh, which is a, was an autonomous region within the uh Soviet Union as well and that was also populated by Armenians and has been Armenian for you know thousands of years as well so they gained um Armenian gained its independence and Artsakh um gained its independence through a war <laughs> after so after the Soviet Union collapsed and that status is still uh not resolved there's a there's a current war in between Azerbaijan and Artsakh so that's that's difficult to be navigating right now. It's very stressful. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a blockade of the only road between Armenia and Artsakh right now by Azerbaijani mm-hmm. army and eco-terrorists, frankly. And so we're doing what we can to reestablish humanitarian uh, aid to the country and to stop as like, it's winter and they're cutting off gas supplies, and you know there are people who are diabetic and they need you know insulin, and people need food, and so it's a really yeah. tough time.
0: Sounds familiar because I have a friend who has family. She was a uh, she flew with me a few times, and um, she has family in Ukraine. She can't even oh, wow. speak to them. There's yeah. no communication, and all she does is cry. And there's it's just. I mean, when you think about it, this is humanity and we, we're all human beings. How we could treat each other in such a horrible way is its crazy. Anyway, uh, let's veer away from that a little yeah. bit and try to get a little happier times here. Um, so um, getting back to your LGBTQ roots, um, when did you realize you were different from other kids Growing up, because I can tell you my story, but mine's a really long one. But um, in school or in the the neighborhood where you grew up, and can you talk a bit about your coming out journey?
1: Oh, okay. I'll try to keep this brief. So I understood myself as not straight when I hit puberty. So this would have been about sixth grade. And oh, really? I, sixth grade. So yeah, that's like, it was early, like 12 ish, 13, yeah, 11, 12 in there. Wow. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. And so I grew up in a very uh, Christian faith tradition on both sides of the family, right? So Wesleyan <laughs> on my dad's side and the Armenian uh, Protestant church on my mom's side. And so, and this was right when HIV and AIDS was the pandemic was really exploding, and so I was just surrounded by hate towards queer people and there was also an additional layer to that of you know being Armenian and being the grandson and great-grandson of genocide survivors and in the Christian faith tradition right queerness is a choice and so there was this you know message of how dare you be queer because you know we need to repopulate you know you you need to marry a Armenian wife you need to have Armenian children like that's what you owe your family members and ancestors who didn't survive, right, the genocide and those who did survive the genocide to make sure that I had a life, right, today. And that's a really heavy thing to put on queer kids, queer Armenian kids, whether they're, you know, Armenian-American, Franco-Armenian, you know, Ar- uh, Russian-Armenian. It's really difficult, right, to navigate that. And I, through that, was trying to develop my own I was very connected to my uh, Wesleyan church and the youth pastor there and was, like, trying to, on my own, create a conversion therapy protocol, which now, when I became, like, in my early 20s and I found the you know the manuals from other, like, conversion therapy protocols, I was like, oh, I invented that when I was 11. Like, so you actually
0: – <laughs> I hate to interrupt you, but you, you actually went through conversion therapy? No, I didn't
1: go through it. I kind of oh, was, like, okay. cobbling together my own version of that because okay. I wasn't telling anybody – And this was something I was doing like in secret Uh on my own and it was – you can imagine that's very isolating. So I was hoping that it would work. And then when it didn't happen, about 17 years old is when I left the church Mm. and went on my own journey and it was long and it was arduous. And I had ultimately – I mean it was – there were some highlights but also some tragic moments in there and and finally started – coming out in my mid-20s after a um, suicide attempt and then some suicide ideation uh, like a year later. And then I was finally able to begin to process through therapy. And I had a really amazing therapist who was able to help me begin to integrate, right, and address the grief that I had of not being straight and what that was doing in my life and also how to – Be a queer person and navigate that and being in the world and and having, you know, resources within myself and tools of how I could do that, you know, Mm -hmm. and come out on my own terms. And I ultimately, you know, started with my, you know, friends and family and I was working in Michigan and that was also arduous of because you could be fired in, you know, a private job for being queer and you have no legal recourse. And so I was always kind of making that dance when I was, you know, working and then I finally came out to my parents in my early, I think it was thirty-one, right when I did that. So, oh
0: wow, uh, okay, yeah. That's yeah. late thirty-one. But you came out before me, but you to yourself, but you came out to everybody else later, right? Is that yeah. right?
1: Uh, it was over my twenties, you know. And,
0: and wow, early so you had 30s. a long journey there. Yeah, yeah mine was. Uh, I knew I was different from when, as far back as I can remember. I, I mean, I remember playing with dolls as a kid, right. And, you know, I had f- female cousins who would come over and be I'd be so much more excited to see them than my male cousins, and yep. you know they wanted to go out and do boy things you know <laughs> and i didn't and so I knew there was something, but I couldn't articulate what it was. I couldn't put my finger on it I knew there was something i would i would call it odd about me um I didn't say gay. I mean, God forbid, I was Catholic. You know, I couldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. You would never admit that. So I was lying to myself pretty much my whole childhood, my whole teenage years, my whole – up until my early 20s when I went to college and realized that there's nothing wrong with me, that there were so many other people like me. And luckily, I went to school in New York, so
1: that helped I went to so the first college that I went to was actually an actors academy, and mm. that was you would think that that would have been an opportune place to come out, right? You're surrounded by theater majors and there's that whole stereotype right of uh, the theater community. but I actually and this is why I get so upset now about the whole conversation about you know, should actor gay actors play gay roles. And I'm like, I had to stay in the closet while I was there because it was so important to me to not be perceived as sh- as queer because I would have lost out on roles. And so I was doing the whole thing with, like, my vo- vocal training to make sure I didn't have any sibilant S's and, like, all the physical oh, training so that my sad. body wasn't read as queer. And now when I hear people, like, saying, like, yeah, straight people are entitled to queer roles, and I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Like what I went through and what so many queer actors go through, like we should be able to to see a queer body performing a queer role, whether it's on stage or television yes. or film is so revolutionary and so powerful and actors are artists and I get really emotional about this subject because you know I studied in l a and I studied with a british uh, you know drama academy in Oxford England, and so I spent a lot of time on the you know learning about acting and and it was it was. Yeah. You would think that would have been an opportune place to come out, and it really it really wasn't. But we have a history of that, though. I mean, I can remember many
0: movies where there were Native American characters mm-hmm. or black characters or a- Asian characters, and they had white people, mm-hmm. dra- you know, they'd paint their face and make them look whatever race they were supposed to be. And even now, when I look at it, it's so. It, 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 I bring up my lunch. I mean, it's just so gross. You know, why can't you find – I'm sure there's somebody that could do that role and that's of that um, persuasion. But I can't imagine uh, being a gay person back in those days because I was never Mm -hmm. interested in acting. I was (laughs) kind of shy back – I was a very not well-liked kid because I was different. You know, kids pushed my books on the floor, beat me Mm -hmm. up, stole my lunch Mm -hmm. money. You know, my mom would give me money to buy candy or buy lunch or whatever every day and, and she goes, Philip, how come you don't you know you, you didn't eat your lunch today? No? Where's your money? Oh, I spent it on what? But I would never tell her that the yeah. kids stole it. Mm. So it's really it was really bad. I hate to go even think about those times because but you know, I share in your um your your walk through life because we went you know, being gay, being gay in those days, you know, today the kids have it a lot better, I wish I had a place a safe space to go and be like in a gay club in a school or I know right? does that make sense yeah like i, I can 't even imagine that I mean that would have been so cool yeah. to just piece, you know meet people like just like me and you know make you know validate myself because i i had no no self worth really but anyway, but thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. that's great um so what uh, let's let's move on to what um your your voice in, in the LGBTQ community. What prompted you to become involved in being a voice for the LGBTQ plus community? Was there a particular person, or an event, or something that guided
1: you to that advocacy? There wasn't a single incident. I think it was a evolving sense of myself. The more I was comfortable and able to understand myself as a queer person, then I found myself gravitating towards advocacy roles. And that started within just my own work within higher education. And then, you know, constantly taking on, I wouldn't say the cause, but trying to create spaces for either, you know, queer students or for queer colleagues, so that they could feel a sense of belonging, right within and pride in the institution as well. You know, there was a college that I worked for St. Paul College, and my students, we carried the pride flag, the rainbow flag in Pride, in Twin Cities Pride. And we did that for like two years in a row, right? And that was really important not only for the students, for the larger community, right, but also for the college to see our, you know, themselves represented in such a high-profile way. Then I was really lucky. I got a job with an organization that was an LGBTQ health equity organization. They were called Rainbow Health Initiative. And I was really privileged as an educator to take all of their community health data that nobody else had, nobody else was collecting in the state of Minnesota. And I was able to take that data from our research manager and then craft that into educational programming. And so I was all over the state of Minnesota. I was working with medical academic programs, I was working with small clinics, I was working with major clinics like Health Partners, Fairview, I organized, like, helped organize an entire like trans health conference, right, for them. And then I also was working with like you know insurance companies, you know like Blue Cross and whatnot, and we organized the first LGBTQ health conference for the state of Minnesota. So that was really uh, important to me as well to begin to see how stress from being queer was impacting our health of our bodies Absolutely. and our emotional health, even our like spiritual health. And to find out, you know, that about three percent of queer people are turned away. From healthcare providers in the state of Minnesota uh, for being queer, like they find out, and the providers like, no, nope, I'm not going to provide you know healthcare to you, which is insane. It's absolutely like, how is this happening? How are people getting away with this? But the queer people are like, I don't want to get dragged into a battle with the care provider, and so they move on and find another care provider, and so this system, you know, perpetuates itself. But that work. With Rainbow Health Initiative uh, then led to the, the work that I was well, – I wouldn't say it led to, but the more I do work within the community, the more confident I feel within myself and the more well-resourced I feel within myself, which then allows me to do more work. And so, You're a beautiful soul. I just oh, have to tell you that. No, I, mean, I mean, to No, 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 no. no. <laughs> see, it took uh,
0: – no, I, ha- I, have to, I have to tell you this and I'll tell you why because what brought me into advocacy was it took AIDS – Mm Because I was coming of age during AIDS. Mm -hmm. AIDS is a you know I get I get very emotional during the AIDS because I lost my best friend, Mm. I lost a lot of people that I really loved, and nobody cared. It was awful. It was like these were not human beings. It was it was anyway but i'm i i'm going off I'm sorry but about it, that. no yes so it, it took me that to drag me into it you just did it because you 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 love your community and you and you it, it didn't take you know this big earthquake to move you does that make sense what i'm trying to say yeah. so i think that i i just want to thank you for that that's amazing and um and as far as aids is concerned you know there's so many people even to this day who are still living with the with the pain, whether it's they still have AIDS mm-hmm. or they lost family members or and it never goes away. You know, it really does When you think about them, you know, you oh, it's it's unbelievable. And then you had the president of the United States who took him like way into his second term to even mention the word. And it took Rock Hudson passing away for mm-hmm. him to finally wake up and say, Yes, AIDS isn't we have to worry, you know, do something about it. So yeah, but um, and 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 I'd like to thank you personally for for your advocacy uh, for the LGBT plus community and especially the trans community because they are now getting the brunt of what we went through as gay people. See, we went through that whole thing, you know, oh, gays this and gays that. Now it's the trans people. They're you know like in Desantis is doing in Florida mm-hmm. and other uh, states are doing uh, demonizing them and treating them you know horribly and. So we, um, we all have to stick together as a community. Every letter of the LGBTQ+, you know, right. whatever letter you are. So, um, again, thank you for that. So I'm going to veer off to another, you know, I wish the show was three hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> it would be so interesting. <laughs> thank you. Would you like to explain to the listeners what the Queer Armenian Library is and what some of the topics are that they would find if they
1: were to visit um, the, your website? The Queer Armenian Library is the world's first library of books and literature and TV series and film and artwork that is made by and or for and or about uh, queer Armenian people. And it was a four-year project that started as a personal project because those two identities I had kept so separate uh, throughout my life. And then finally, in my mid-30s, I said, I need to start to put these two things together. I need to, you know, see how I can live in the world as both queer and as Armenian and not have those things constantly in conflict with each yeah, other. What
0: a dichotomy that must have been for you. You know, like yeah. the, it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah was,
1: okay. I'm not gonna lie. It was really tough. Yes, it and must have been, yes. I am a book person and my joke is that I came out of the womb with a book and books have always been my solace <laughs> and I've always, you know, turned to them to help <laughs> me understand the world. And so I said, OK, there's got to be something. There's got to be an op-ed, a poem. Maybe there's a nonfiction book out there that somebody wrote, maybe some news articles that are actually positive or at least neutral, you know, about the queer Armenian experience. And so I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., and I put the words gay Armenian into Google, and that's when it began. And, you know, I began doing all of these searches, not just through Google, but, you know. Uh, Uh, like looking through like Barnes & Noble and Amazon and Thrift Books, which is an amazing site where you can like literally Google, not Google, but you can search all the thrift stores and their books that they have, right? And I was finding Armenian bookstores and looking at their online catalogs, trying to find, and I was looking through like LGBT Armenian, gay Armenian, bisexual Armenian, trans Armenian, like all of these different search terms. And it was wild because, you know, I would go to a site and I'd search something, you know, in January and I'd come back again in June and find something new right and so it was this constant ongoing process and I'd buy the books and watch the you know the films or the tv series and I eventually about four years in realized I might have the most comprehensive collection and I can't just keep that to myself like nobody else should have to go through this and so I said well I'll create a website and then me being me I didn't like, you know, it could have been really simple, just put a list of titles right on a website and just publish it. And I was like, no, I want to have a page devoted to each book. And I want there to be like a bio of the author and like pull quotes. And if I can find like a video or a radio interview or a podcast interview they did, then I want to embed that right in the in the page. And then I want to help people like find how to buy the book. So they don't they can just click the link and go, they don't have to like then search, okay, well, here's this book, how do I find it? And because that was also a chore, right? Because these books are, you know, throughout the world. And I think I did like three versions of the website. It took about a year to create the website. And then I finally, finally published it in November of 2020. It's beautiful, by the way. For the
0: listeners, go there. And I'll give you all the information at the end of the show so people can go on to your website. And, I mean, there's so many different... Categories. I mean, it's amazing what you've a- accumulated over the years. It's it's fabulous. It's just great. And um, well, what
1: we discovered in the process, and this is what I, I was not expecting, is that we literally, I guess, I found a subgenre of queer literature that was Armenian focused, and I, we found a subgenre of. Armenian literature, which is queer focused and nobody knew that that existed and and the quantity and the quality of it and the breadth of it, not just, you know, in, in the United States, but also within Armenia. And so it was, it was really illuminating, right, for folks. And I just got an invitation like last week for a conference, virtual conference is happening in Eastern Europe to present on it. And, you know, so that's like, the word is out there and I know it's very niche topic, but for me, I was like, I know I'm never going to get like thousands of hits on this website. For me, what I look at is in WordPress where I created the site, there is a map. It's kind of like a heat map that shows you all of the different countries where people are going to, to the, coming from right, to access the website. And I love this. They use pink as the, uh, <laughs> as the color to shade <laughs> the different countries. Yeah. And after I published it, it was just so gratifying to see the entire world turn pink. Really? Yeah, of all these people oh, from across the world that were coming to the site and accessing Beautiful. it. And that just, you know, made me really proud of that. And now we've actually grown to the point where I've brought we've brought in a managing editor, Natalie Cruz. And so we, we volunteer. This is a labor of love. Like, there's not actually money <laughs> that comes out of this. But Natalie Cruz, she's just started working. She's actually an art historian. And she is finding all of these amazing... Uh, Armenian artists like visual art and so we're literally building out now the art wing if you will of the library right. and so stay tuned for that there's going to be a whole bunch of new updates coming to the library starting this spring and we were My just God, meeting I am on not Friday. worthy
0: you are amazing and 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 the funny thing is i um I went. I, I you know. I did my little clicks throughout the, you know, and it talks about Armenian famous people that are Armenian mm-hmm. and are in the LGBTQ plus community, such as Chaz Bono. Yeah. I didn't even know that. I until mean, I well, read. Sure. Yeah. Well. She, yes. Yeah. You, you know. And you did, but I didn't. Two, you you got to put two and two together and get four. You know. Yeah. I didn't do that. And um. And yeah, there were other people at which I, like off the top of my head, I can't remember. But yeah. And and. You're, you're giving these people you know a, um, a platform, you know I mean, Chaz Bona wrote a book, I think, as well, yep. right a uh, memoir, yeah. about what his journey was going mm-hmm. through being Armenian as well, and uh, uh, coming out as trans and yeah wow. well, again, at, at the end of the show, I will give the listeners the information. So um, I'd like to preface my question by emphasizing that your library is not only for uh, LGBTQ plus Armenians, but for everyone in our community. Can you tell elicitors listeners a bit about the Armenian culture? And the struggle of Armenian people in particular, and the struggle of LGBTQ plus Armenians. So, no, let's let's make this short. How can I was we? Going to say that's a three hour answer. Yeah, uh, right no, I was going to say that. <laughs> so, I'm going to try to help you out here, <laughs> if I can. Um, so, for the people that are an Armenian and they're LGBTQ, how would it help? How could it enhance their view of of your culture and about LGBTQ plus issues?
1: I think. That Armenian, queer Armenians have a shared experience with queer people across right the globe, but we also have insights that may be useful. I, I don't like – I'm at a point in my career where I'm done kind of like justifying the validity <laughs> and like my humanity. And I, I, part of me is like I want to say that there's obviously this value in these books and in these stories. But at the same time, I'm like there is inherent value and we don't need to be constantly – You know, proving it right to straight people and to cisgender people, Um, but I think that there is a perspective on queerness and how we inhabit our bodies, particularly within a diaspora. All queer people are in a diaspora, right? We we understand ourselves as queer. We're most likely in a family where we're the only ones, and we may be growing up in communities where there's maybe like five of us, and we always have to go out into the world and find ourselves, and find our families of choice, and find our friends, and find our community. So. We're in this diaspora, and I think Armenians very much understand diaspora, right? We are displaced people. We are indigenous to uh, Southwest Asia, but because of the genocide and lots of other like horrendous like pogroms and wars and whatnot, we are spread throughout the globe. And I think that we're able to give that idea of how do you create a home? How do you create a home in your body? How do you create a home within a community? And there's lots of other cultures right? that can do that, but there's something I think that is... Unique and interesting to folks about how do you go about doing that, right? How do you go about putting your life back together after a traumatic experience, whether that's to you or to your community, right? Like a a genocide or a war and how do you navigate Christianity, right? There's a a really different dynamic of how, you know, Armenian – I mean Armenia rather was the first country to adopt. Christianity as a state religion and it was very violent how that happened right it wasn't like everybody voted like yay let's all be Christians now (laughs) right like there were folks that did that and then they like violently conquered the rest of the country and so navigating that Christianity and that faith tradition for thousands of years right how do we there's a different story that we can tell to folks about how to navigate that and what I also really appreciate about Armenian queerness it tends to be a little bit more forgiving for folks who aren't ready to come out mm-hmm. yet uh, because of the culture, right? And because of the the faith tradition, I think that there is in the West and particularly in the States, there's this idea that coming out solves everything. And, and in a lot of ways it does. And in a lot of ways it is a weight lifted off. Um, but sometimes you can't be 15 and come out. And sometimes you can't be 21 and come out. And sometimes you can't be 35 and come out yet. Right. And I, what I appreciate about Armenian queerness and pre- queerness – I mean, your perspectives on this is that it's okay. You know, you'll find the time to do it. Don't stress out because you can't come out yet. You know, it's totally valid. You will find it in your own time. And yeah, there may be things that you have to do that you don't really want to do. You know, the the way that you're interacting with your family and how you don't want to lose your family and how do you navigate that. But I think that it is giving ourselves grace To not feel like you have to come out right away, that you have to particularly conform to Western ideals, right, of of what queerness could be because it's not the only way to be queer. And a lot of – you know, I know a lot of Armenians who want to come to the States because there's way more freedom here and I get that. And it came because of our tradition of queerness and our tradition of queer politics. So I don't want to denigrate that in any way. It was necessary and we need to keep doing that. But I think adding in this other perspectives and wisdoms that we get from diasporas and other cultures, either within the Middle East or Southwest Asia, Africa, you know, Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera, I think is important because it enriches the resistance and the revolution that we need to be creating to create radically inclusive spaces for queer people. Mm-hmm.
0: And the coming out experience in other countries such as um, – I can pick up – pick out one off the top of my head. I have a friend from Pakistan – Mm-hmm. Um, and he said being gay there was worse than you were uh, like mm-hmm. a murderer. You know, mm-hmm. it was just horrible. And he did everything he could to come here, and he finally was able on a scholarship to mm-hmm. come That's to good. school. And he didn't go back, but he he ended up mm-hmm. marrying someone, and then he was able to, through that experience mm-hmm. to. Uh, stay, but uh, he, he said it was like torture because mm-hmm. it, it's a cr- it's criminal to be gay in, in in Pakistan, and I'm sure in other countries. So your your uh, the Armenian experience and the Pakistani experience, and uh, I guess the Iranian experience and mm-hmm. Russian experience. You know, um, a lot of Russians are not only leaving because they don't want to be sent to war to kill other people. But they're leaving because they they don't feel free there either. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a it's a journey for a lot of people, and we're lucky to. Although in the United States, we have our you know, <laughs> we have our dark side. I hate to say, mm-hmm. uh, we do, it, we do, and unfortunately, it's growing and it's getting. You know, um, I'm hoping that we uh, the people here will realize that once you take the rights from one group away. You, you follow me, mm-hmm. and then you, you you could be next. Mm-hmm.
1: We need to be in this boat together and sail together. Well, um, I mean, to your yeah. point about Russia, particularly, we are a global. I mean, to pick up on what what you're saying here, we are a global community, and you know, they did the don't say gay bills first a few years oh, ago, yeah, sure, right? Sure, and sure. so. Our fascists in our country, right, the conservatives in our country saw that and they've now adopted it Correct. and kind of made it – they're, you know, tied it to the American homophobia. Yeah, because Putin is their, their new Trump, Yeah,
0: you know, to them. Yeah, they love him. They love him to death. And and, and they saw on TV when they were doing the pride parades in Russia, the, the cops were beating mm-hmm. up the people that were marching in those parades because it's not – you're promoting a, a – um, what's the word? I, I – I, don't know what they call it in there. Yeah, I can't remember it. it, 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 it it's like indecency. Mm-hmm. It's an indecency. You're promoting indecency. That's what they call it in right. Russia, and they want that to be done here in the name of religion, and that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So we need to stick together. You know, everybody, everybody, every marginalized person, whether you're you're black, you're you're gay, you're you're queer, you're you're Asian, you're Native American, whatever you are. Realize that there's somebody else in the same boat, and we need to get in this. We need to, jo- you know, join hands and fight against that
1: that horror, which is fascism. So I, 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 w- I think you were going to say the same thing, right? Um, or- yeah, and I think that. Well, I think where I was going with that is that you know, queer folks in those countries could give us a heads up. You know, I think it's really easy to be like, oh, that's happening over there. You know, that's yes. happening in Pakistan. That's happening in Armenia. That's happening in Russia. But yes. they you know in Poland, Poland, and Hungary, I mean wow, I mean, just nightmare over there as well, but it mm-hmm. because of these global conservative and fascist movements, they all are learning from each other, right, and so in queer communities in those areas can give us a heads up and they can talk about how are you resisting over there so that we can learn about our resistance and how we can break that down, but also send that out right, so there can be a dialogue between them and t- yeah, to your point about i mean i'm thinking actually of the rainbow coalition of jesse jackson right in the 80s um -hmm. but each of our community struggles is unique and there are different ways of and barriers that needs to happen there and i think that there is something valuable and valid about learning about how that you know like police brutality shows up very differently right for black african and african-american people than it does for queer people we both have histories of police brutality right we both i mean Pride started as a riot against the police, right? So we have these, but it's different. And I think that if we can begin to understand those differences, then each of our community revolutions, each of our advocacy for changing, right, public safety and making it actually about safety, right, will be enriched by that, you know, by understanding how are our different communities dealing with that and then how can we overlap and address those different barriers and in doing so, those barriers come down, so that none of us are left behind. That's a good
0: point. That you, the word safety, when you said that, I a light bulb went up on over my head because I'm I'm every time they, meaning the fascists end of the <laughs> spectrum, um, demonize one of our groups. Guess what? People start dying. Mm-hmm. Look what happened with the China virus. Mm-hmm. Asians were getting killed and beaten up. Mm-hmm. Because of you know who Voldemort, mm-hmm. I call him on my show, if you listen the name that shall not be mentioned do you, have, do you like Harry Potter,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, a and, little less so because of what j k. Rowling is doing, and well yeah, her, yeah. but but that's it's a, hard, that's hard to a, separate the two right now, I guess the more she says stuff and i'm I'm like, oh, stop it you're it you kind of ruins the books for me yeah
0: but, right i I totally yeah. agree, but um so asians were were getting attacked then um now now it's about um ap african american studies in florida and mm-hmm. now the other red states want to do that because they're in, in you know, they're saying that black lives don't matter mm-hmm. why are you putting that in there for you know people are there's no racism there's no in, you know uh, uh, there's no racism running through the veins of the american uh, you know
1: well culture. they got away in florida got away with the don't say gay bills and the banning of lgbtq books and now they're going after african-american well, they're go after everyone right because
0: yeah. they they use that as a way to get their get butts to the polls mm-hmm. i mean this i hate to say it that way but that's what they do yeah. i remember when they did this to the gays back in the 80s and a- uh, we got to put them in in trucks and send them, you know, put them in these these camps, and they're going to spread AIDS to all mm-hmm. our people, and don't drink in their, w- they're going to st- contaminate our water fountains, and and because they didn't know at the time how AIDS was spread, and it was um, so it was demonizing not only the disease but the people that had it, which were, happened to be gay. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So there's a way to do that, and they are very good at that. Mm-hmm. Now the next – now the African-American people are getting that uh, treatment. Oh, we can't teach about Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ issues in the black community as well. So there's a lot of things that they do uh, uh, to try to um, – and, and again, this I, I think this is my opinion, to get butts to the polls. Mm-hmm. They, they, it, it motivates people. <gasps> those people, yeah. yeah. We can't let those people – take over this country so let's vote for these people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um we, we need to get <laughs> we need to get our our people galvanized. Yes. Not only the gay community, not only the queer community, not only the trans community, not even just the black community, not even the asian everybody that's marginalized has to get on the bandwagon and vote and get people into office who care about everybody and make this a world, this world a better place. I know it sounds like Pollyanna, but we have to do it. It's the struggle. It's a struggle. Yeah, yeah. All right, now we're gonna veer off to another. <laughs> Don't you love my show? Yes, it's, just, it's great. It's a lot of tributaries. Uh, well, would you like to talk about this queer book, Save My Life, which I love? I appreciate that. I love it. You have to listen to the Downright Upright show, and you have to listen to uh, (laughs) This Queer Book Saved My Life. These two shows, because uh, they're great. I do. I like my show. I guess I'm prejudiced. No, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Thank you. Um, And what our listeners could expect to hear uh, being spoken about on that podcast and what they might learn. Mm -hmm. So
1: um, take it away. So This Queer Book Saved My Life is – Having each episode a new queer guest that talks about the book that saved their life. And it's it's right there in the title, right? But what that means is every guest interprets saved differently. And so for some guests, it's this book gave them the language to name something about their queer existence that they didn't have before. Or it helped them process an abusive relationship. Or it helped them begin their gender affirmation. um, Or it helped them process homophobia in their family and get the tools they needed to address that and have a more healthy and positive relationship right with their family um sometimes it was like the the books are epiphanies like oh actually this is who i am as a bisexual person like this is what bisexuality is and this is you know um so it's moments of realization and we are unique and that when we are able to and we make every effort to do this is that we also bring the book's author onto the show as well so that we yes. can have a uh three-way, if you will, conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Could I come? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, to have all three of us talking about <laughs> yes. the book and because it it gives the, the guest insight into what it took to get that book out there, right? And what's interesting to me of bringing the authors in is hearing, well, where did the story come from? Why did they write the story? But also – Profound in the sense of there's a very real difference between writing their story and taking ownership of it, whether it's in memoir, nonfiction, uh, you know, YA, you know, young adult fiction, and then getting it published. And that's like a nightmare, right? The gatekeepers are all different and they're all, you know, there's one episode where, you know, Um, there's a author who's like, I wrote the book and it took 10 years (laughs) before it was actually published. And then it took like another five years before it actually found its audience, right? Because the publishers really didn't get behind it in terms of marketing it. So there's this really, um, different experience for folks as they're and then also for the 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 author i mean the authors the guests how they find the book right again you have to go out into the world and find these books and sometimes it's a gift sometimes they're at a friend's house and they see a, you know on the on the shelf and they're like oh what is that sometimes they find it in a magazine a list of books like oh hey i might go and try to find that one right so it's really interesting to me particularly at this moment which is a very paradoxical moment right we have weirdly, and I did not have this on my life bingo card of hearing the Pope say that, you know, laws criminalizing queer people are a sin and should be repealed. And I'm like, oh, really? Which the Catholic Church still, you know, major problems. But then we also have armed vigilantes showing up at drag queen story hours outside libraries. Oh, that's so scary. And all the bills banning and don't say gay and all the attacks on, like, you know, criminalizing trans healthcare. So we're in this weird moment of How do we navigate this? How do we live through this? How do we have life-affirming moments? So to hear – I don't want to hear necessarily – I don't want to create another podcast that's about this book is so fun to read, right? I want to hear how did a queer person read a queer book and found a new way of living or loving on this planet, right? And then to hear the author talk about – This is why I wrote this, and this was the struggle in writing it, and this was the joy in writing it, and then this is what it took to get that story out into the Uh world. I think those are important to hear right now.
0: Yeah. Can you – because the show is so short, an hour. (laughs) um, (laughs) Can you tell our listeners one interview? Just pull one out, one or two that you can do briefly, um, that really motivated you and that you, you felt it. It was so important for it to get out there so we can get the listeners to maybe navigate that one and go onto your website and listen to that particular one. Because they should listen to
1: everyone, obviously. But um, one that actually – That's so memorable to you, I guess. Well, one that's, I mean, top of mind today because as of the day that we're recording this is our season finale, our season two finale. And the uh, book we're talking about is Ties That Bind and it's talking about homophobia in the family. And that really resonated with me because of how homophobia showed up both in my Armenian side of the family and the American side of the family and how I lived with that and didn't understand it and how I wished I had had the tools to navigate that. And that's what that book does. And the guest is Kuwaiti American. And so, you know, obviously Armenian and and Kuwaiti experiences are, are very different. But to have somebody who is from that region of the world talking about that and also navigating, you know, American culture, right, as well. It, that was just really meaningful to me to hear that. Um, not that that, I mean, the book is, is is amazing and it speaks to everybody. As the author, Sarah Schulman says, she's like, familial homophobia is something that we all share in common, sure. right? We can be in an elevator for, you know, two minutes and we're able to right away explain what's going on. Um, but how do we navigate that? How do we address that? How do we have, and she advocates for third-party intervention, right, um, about... We need somebody from outside the family to be like, "Hey, this is who this person is in your family and they are amazing and they deserve your love and you need to knock it off." Right? And this is how you make it over. Them, yeah. Basically, but also yeah. this is how you stop the homophobia within the family. Absolutely. And the petty denigrations or the, you know, emotional violence or the, you know, emotional abuse or physical in some instances. Oh yeah. So.
0: Absolutely. And do you ever have podcasters on your show?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes we have I'd, writers' podcasts to be lawyers. on your show absolutely I could
0: tell you my journey because it 's very interesting i 've never actually well i haven't episode one of this show I talk about myself, you know which i don 't like to do, but there 's a lot of my coming out story. That's very. Um, I'd love to share, but I haven't had a time to because I have so many guests, and I want to share those guests with everybody. And I know, right? but um, yeah, it was a very, it was a very trying time for me. Um, being a Catholic boy, mm-hmm. altar boy, you know, Oof. you know, which is on top of that, and um, hearing the word the F word. You know, not the fu word, the fa word, mm-hmm. all over the place, and in, in, in my in my own family members speaking it right in front of me, and I know that I belong. Mm-hmm. I that's who I am, and they're talking about me in such a horrible way. It's very demeaning, and it's very um, your self esteem just plummets. It becomes you, you begin to hate yourself. It's just awful, and I think that's what we need. Just what you just finished saying, having people from outside of that little bubble going in. Bursting that bubble and saying, that is not the way to treat that person. Mm -hmm. And thank you. That's a great way to – Well, that's all Sarah Schulman. Yeah. As she talks about in her book. It's a great way to end this first half of the show because now – Yeah. You know what I'm going to say, right? Yes. We have come to the part of the show I like to call the shift. And it's the The shift shift with an F. Because if you don't say the F, we have problems. (laughs) Um, Where I shift the questioning away – on your amazing career and on your opinions of current events. Okay, you ready for this one? Oh, boy. This is a roller coaster. How much time do we have? (laughs) I've got opinions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you got a few more minutes. So as of the taping of this show, we found out that Minnesota, yay, we have good news to tell our listeners, is the first state in the union. That has codified reproductive rights Mm -hmm. into our state constitution. Yay, Minnesota. I've been – you know, it's funny. I've been cheerleading Minnesota on almost every show because we've been doing a lot of great stuff. We have. Think about it. I mean other states can't even say that. Um, Do you have any thoughts you would like to share about this significant piece of legislation? Just, you know, share what your feelings are about it. How important it is.
1: Well, it makes me think, first of all, how lucky we are to be in this state. Oh, yeah. Um, If everything's going to come back down to states' rights and there are no more federal rights, right? If they're going to strip that away from the Constitution, then how lucky to be in Minnesota and to have those protections and to have people that are willing to organize and make that happen. I think the bill is so important, not just for – Cisgender women's health, but also for trans people's health right as well. And I I think there's uh, reproductive rights are not just about abortion. And so I think it's really important that we make that connection and we see how expansive this actually is to queer health as well that this bill also advances that. And so I'm really glad to see that we were right away that we were going after that. And I mean, how lucky as well that we got the legislature Blue, as well as the governor's office and all of the state, you know, cabinet offices, right? As well, that we can say what we believe and enact the legislation and make that law and give people those freedoms and those rights. And it's it's really exciting to say yes, that. Yes, because
0: in uh, in my opinion, um, reproductive rights are an integral part of of care. Mm-hmm.
1: It's it's it care. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, if, if a doctor says to a um, a woman. Um, who identifies as a woman and says to her, you know, you, um, if you have this baby, you know, even though you're in your eighth month here, um, there's a possibility you could die because you have this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so obviously I don't, I know there's certain like uh, breech babies and things like that. There's a chance you could die. And so can the fetus. Um, So this is a healthcare thing. You know, not every and and you know and and the thing that makes me angry here, I go off by tangerine again. Um, I I always go off on the tangerine, but because I, cause I, I get, this makes me so angry. You know, when I when I hear about these things, because um, they try to say that oh, Democrats want to give women abortions up to the day of birth. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? How many women do you? I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you, JP. How many women do you know or have ever known? That had an abortion the
1: day before they were ready to give birth. I mean, come on. I imagine it's in those instances where – first of all, to answer your question, I don't. Um, well, but yeah. as I understand and look at the, the policy history and the data that goes into that, you know, the one of the major reasons why we want to have that and we shouldn't criminalize doct- – I mean we shouldn't criminalize it at all. But when the health of the mother – Absolutely. That's right, what I was going to say. Either on the day of or in the weeks leading Correct. up to it where it's very clear that the health of the mother is in risk and – we need to do something to protect Correct. her, right? And, yep. Or to protect him. You know, trans men, <laughs> you know, non-binary folks, you know, they can – they Absolutely. also um, – you know, pregnancy affects them as that's well. That's true. You don't so. have to
0: identify as a woman yeah. right. to get pregnant. And that's – oh, so – and, and then here's my other tangerine. So the, the, the Republicans will say, can you give me the definition of a woman? Now, does that irk you? Does yeah. it bring your blood pressure way high yes. or is it, am I the only one?
1: yeah. No, it, it.
0: You can't even give the definition of a woman, and you want to, you get, and you want to kill babies till the very last day. I mean, it's just sickening with what, what they're spreading. They're not talking about the health of the mother. They're talking about these little nitpicking
1: issues and mm-hmm. they're trying to get people galvanized again to get butts to the to, to the polls. And well actually it just- can be very in- very quick to under you know to describe what gender is. You know, your gender identity is your internal sense of who you are and the gender that you have and then you align your presentation and your, your behaviors to that gender identity, right? And folks who are cis, they begin to do that immediately. Right, And then folks who are trans or non-binary or agender or bigender, they begin to to learn that and understand that about themselves. And usually as children, not usually, but then it's like repressed and stigmatized. But it's actually very quick that you can describe gender and then get into all the nuances of it, right? But that gender identity, it is that internal sense of who you are and that is fixed. Yeah,
0: and on on a lot of my shows, if you listen to them, I I use this example all the time. Now – if somebody says, my name is Betty, call me Betty, mm-hmm. you're going to say, okay, I'll call you Betty. Yeah. Now, why is it a problem all of a sudden when someone claims to be of a certain gender? Please call me this. Mm-hmm. Please uh, 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 address me as ABC. But this is a problem for some people. It it, it aggravates me like to no end because it's not respectful because if you want Betty to be – if if you're calling Betty Betty because she wants to be called Betty, mm-hmm. what is the difference between that and somebody saying I would like to be called he, she, uh, uh, whatever pronoun you want to use? I want to be addressed as mix rather mm-hmm. than mister or whatever. You know, I, I, I'm i fine, with, but whatever you want to be called, I have no problem with that. And I don't understand the issue. It shouldn't even be an issue. But <laughs> again, I – I digress, <laughs> and to correct
1: uh, myself from you know I just said it was fixed, but gender identity can also be fluid, right? And so all the so, things yeah. that we understand about gender are finally us breaking. These false notions that were, you know, foisted upon us. And so when people complain, like, about the LGBTQQ, you know, two spirit, and I'm like, yeah, we need that though, because we are deconstructing what sexuality and gender identity is. And it's actually this very rich tapestry, and we need that. And so, you know, when people are like the alphabet people, I'm like, yeah, absolutely, because there are all of these I'm identities. I'm proud to be part of the alphabet. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm the G.
0: <laughs> That's how I identify you. Uh, what letter are you in the alphabet? Q. You're the Q. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that. But I have – I just met uh, a, a girl. We have friends now, um, really good friends. We met on the street. We were just – she just – we just hit it off. She goes, I'm an L and I'm proud of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> She's like – and I thought about that. I says, yeah, well, be who you are and love yourself. That's the big thing for me. Anyway, we move on to yeah. the next question. Um, let's talk – and this one we can talk about um, forever. But we get uh, – time's starting to peter out. But uh, let's talk about the beating and death of Tyree Nichols mm-hmm. um, by five police officers in Memphis. Do you think better training alone can uh, prevent this from happening again, or, no. or what measures would you suggest to ensure that the brutality doesn't occur again? Also, um, as an added tidbit here, uh, did you know that four of the five police officers had policy violations on their records already? Mm-hmm. So
1: that that should have been a you know a, a flashing mm-hmm. red light, you know. It's not a training issue. I know a lot of I mean, Minnesota State. The uh, so the college I work for is part of the Minnesota State system, right? And we train eighty percent of the police officers and public safety officers within the state of Minnesota. And the education is first rate. You know what we're giving them. there is there's not a training issue there, right? When they get onto the force, and we've heard this many, 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 many times, when they get onto the force, they're told forget everything that you just learned. We are going to tell you how this works. And so problem number one, right? And then I know a lot of folks as well who are doing really amazing work within departments themselves, right? So there's a really great education that you're getting prior to becoming an officer. And then there are folks that are trying to do really good work with when they're already officers and with these police departments. It is not a training issue. In my opinion, it is not a training issue. There are structural issues that we need to rethink what public safety means, in this country, and I think that unless we're very serious about that, and we need to stop saying training, 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 or bad apples, it's not. We see these patterns. The same thing with Derek Chauvin. We're now seeing with these officers, right? History of violations of you know policy, you know disciplinary measures, and then it's just let it go, let yeah. it keep going. And so, on the one hand, you know, as a former member of a union, I want to be like I'm pro union, <laughs> right? But we can't use, we can't hide destructive behavior behind a union contract. And there has to be a way that we begin to structurally address this. You know, police budgets should not be the biggest part of a city's budget. You know, I remember one of my partners had a, um, was having a reaction. uh, He's diabetic. And when I called 911, they're like, do you want an officer? And I shouted at them because I was, I was like, this is an emergency and I need somebody right now. And I just, I remember shouting at them, why do I need a police officer right now? I need health professionals, send an ambulance. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah. And the ambulance got there and, you know, um, everything was fine. And, you know, we were getting everything stabilized. And then one of the paramedics was like, yeah. So I just, you know, I talked to an officer and I'm like, why? And they're like, well, they, you know, they called us, you know, to see what was going on. And I'm like, but what did a police officer have to do why was it any part of their jurisdiction when it comes to a health emergency? I know, right? You know, so they're involved in things that I don't think they need to be involved yeah. with.
0: Like a traffic stop. For me, for example, mm. people shouldn't be dying from a traffic stop. No. If you want to give them a ticket, give them a virtual ticket yeah. maybe if you don't have to even stop them. Say, "We're uh, pull, um, well, pulling you over because you, you, you sped, you'll, you'll receive this in in the mail. Goodbye. And mm. – you know, and that's it, but too many people are dying for for very simple things. We don't have social workers on 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 the scene you know that could mm-hmm. help with mental health issues um we We just want the cop there who has no training in that field yeah, does that make sense yeah so yeah so this this is this could be a whole show in itself, but I just wanted to bring that out there that yes, it's not. A uh,
1: training issue because it's 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 an issue issue. <laughs> it's a- well, it's placing the responsibility. It's shifting the responsibility, right? So instead of addressing what's happening within a police department, it's saying, "Oh, well, the problem are the educators." The problem is not the educators. The problem is what's happening within the department and what is being addressed and what is not being addressed there. And so, you know, that's where the the change needs to come from.
0: Yes, yes. All right. uh, This question, um, I've introduced this question now to all my guests as of last two shows ago because I want everybody's opinion. I want to see like where everybody's going on this issue because once the true answer happens... You can see whether you got it right or you were very far from getting it right. (laughs) It's a a clairvoyance question. Oh, Oh, yes. Um, I have been asking all my guests who they think will be the Republican nominee and who they think will be the Democratic nominee in the 2024 general election next year. I'm going to pick your brain now and find out what you think and why. We've had interesting answers, by the way. I just want you to know. It could be a dark horse. It could be somebody you think it will be.
1: I think so many of the uh, Republicans are ride or die with Trump and so I don't – and the more people like Nikki Haley just got into the field, and obviously DeSantis is going to get into the field, and I think a couple of others. Like I think the Koch brothers. I was reading something yesterday. They're going to, you know, fund with all their money an anti-Trump candidate. Yes, they're, right? they're, and I they're I think moving away
0: from him. That yeah? was
1: the original problem in 2016. Is the field was so large, and he had such a horrifying message that was I don't. Even, it's not about grievance. It's about cruelty, right? Bonding over cruelty. And that's what happened is the field was so split that he was able to move ahead. I, but now so many people are ride or die with him that I don't – So you think it's going to be Trump, on the, be Trump. And, on the Republican side and on the
0: Democratic side? Think, do you think Biden will run? And if not, who do you think will – because I, I, I keep saying Gavin Newsom. I don't know why because I think the Democrats finally need a bulldog. We've had all these really nice people. You know, Barack Obama, how sweet he is, and oh, Joe Biden, <laughs> little old Joe, and, and Bill Clinton. You know, everybody's so nice on the – maybe it's about time we get a Trump yeah. on our side to fight our battles for us. So even though I don't like that kind of politics, I think maybe it will wake up the silent people that aren't voting and say, yeah, maybe this guy is good. So what do you think of Gavin? And what do you think of other people that
1: um, I, may come? I, I'm not going to predict. I worry that it's going to be Biden. Um, yeah. I hope that it's not Biden. He said he old. was going to be he's a one old, term. Yeah. And, 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 and by
0: the way, I want to I stop you. I don't want my guests to think I'm an ageist. <laughs> I'm really not, guys. I lo- I'm 63 well, years old. I am I, not an ageist. I just think we it's We don't 80. need senators in their 90s. Yeah, that's my point. Like at some point.
1: You know, I think he was very good at being a – let's move away from, from Trump, the psychosis yes. that was mm-hmm. – You know, oh, I said his name. The, yeah, <laughs> he who shall not be named. Um, but I agree. I would love to see Gavin get into it. I love someone who would be a bulldog. I think Kamala has not been set up for success as all VPs are. So I would love to see Kamala be put into a position. And I think that might happen now that she doesn't have to constantly be in the Senate and be the tiebreaker vote. Mm -hmm. I hope that she is able to really dive in because she's a former attorney general. Like she can take it to people, right, as well. But we haven't been – because I don't think they want her to out – you don't want the VP to outshine the president, right? But I hope that she is able to get out and be in places where she is like, hey, there's Kamala. Like this is why you know people were interested in her during the primary. So I don't know who it's going to be. I can tell you I hope it's not Biden. I would love to see someone who is a – fighter who's going to take it to them and so that's where you know if that can be Kamala if that can be you know Gavin or someone else that right that's coming up that's willing to to do that I think that's what we that's what we need right now you know I think that we need to rally around this is who we are this is what we believe in and I hope I, I see that model right now in Minnesota, <laughs> and I see that model happening in Michigan, where they did the same thing. Right, they recaptured the legislature for Democrats the first time. They reelected a you know Democratic they governor. Put,
0: they put a, a abortion on 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 the yep. a, on the ballot, and that brought the bodies out. Yep. See what I'm saying? When you you have an issue that'll bring the bodies out, they mm-hmm. come out and they vote, mm-hmm. and that's what unfortunately what the Republicans do. They use these uh, sp- you know um, segregating issues. Oh, hate these people, hate those people, and those people, the other people come out and say, "Yeah, I don't like those people," and they come out,
1: and um, so yeah. And I think that's what helped Michigan a lot. Mm-hmm. It did, yeah. it did. I agree a hundred percent. So I hope that people are looking at what's happening in Michigan and in Minnesota and saying, "Wait, you can rally, you can fight, you can declare boldly who you you know who you are, and go for that." I, I worry though about the compromises that happen. Within the conservative side of the Democrats side of things, you know what I mean? Like, I was so frustrated watching Biden's first half of his term, where the progressives, right, and the, you know, the the squad and all of them that are supposed supposedly so, you know, irrational, and they, you know, everything purity test, blah, 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 they were the ones working with Biden. And it was cinema and mansion who are like no we're going to be irrational it was the, we're going was to the moderates yeah. and so these mm-hmm. you know these moderates conservatives you know how you want to you know however you want to do that but it's like wait a minute here Th- there's something that needs to be addressed there this idea that the, the the moderates and the conservatives are the more rational side of the party i don't think that's true Yeah, yeah. i don't think that's true they how were many, the ones people- that stopped so many big things from happening and i also like you know people are like well it was just cinema and it was just mansion i'm like, no. The things that you read, you know, and certainly like The Guardian or, you know, political where people are like they're so happy that Manchin is doing that because it gives them cover, right? Other senators who would have voted no but they don't want to and so it's giving them cover for Manchin to do that. So I hope also that there is this – not reckoning but this reflection that's happening within the moderate side of things that, you know, you can go bold. You don't have to be scared. You know, third way. You know, that Clinton did. Maybe that's not the answer here, but it, I, whatever it is, I hope that it is bold and aggressive. This is who we it are. Helps all people, yes. and there's joy in that. And we need to go for it because this kind of tepid, you know, technocratic response mm. may be useful, but it's not inspiring. And Correct. to your point, we need to inspire people to get to the yes. polls. And I, my last point on
0: that, on this question, is Gretchen Whitmer. Mm. That's another lady. Lady, um, I, I think she identifies as a lady, a woman. Um, is she? I don't know. I'm assuming um, she is amazing, I think. Watch out for her. Mm-hmm. She's somebody that that's going to be a mover and a shaker in the in the near future. Anyway, uh, so um, before we end the show. I hate to do this. I want to. I could go on forever with you. I just love you. Uh, is there any particular uh, political story that I haven't mentioned that you just want to bring up really quickly before we uh, we 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 show the credits? <laughs> um, no, I think we'll leave it there. I okay, we'll that, it there. that's fine. Uh, so we've come to the end of the show, and uh, thank you again for coming and spending. I know you're a very busy guy, and t- to even spend one hour with me is you just made my day. No, so I appreciate thank it. Thank you. And Us queer podcasters need to have stick each other's together, guys, and I yeah. would do yours in a in a in a fast minute. Yeah, let's make if that happen. You, yeah, I'd love to. It would be my utter pleasure. I would pay you to go on your show. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> for more information, <laughs> love him uh, about JP. And his amazing career. Um, you can go to QueerArmenianLibrary.com, right? And hmm And ThisQueerBook.com, or you can follow him at J.P. Der Bogosian, right? Bogosian. Bogosian. There oh, my go. goodness. I'm so sorry. I, you're good. You're good. Well, I'll spell it, though. How's that? Yeah. At, uh, this is Twitter, J.P., J.P., D-E-R-B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-A-N. And there's going to be a link next to the podcast so they can click right on it and go right there. So thank you again, J.P. I loved doing this. Thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation. Oh, my God. I love you. And and, um, to the listeners, I'd like to thank you for spending time with us uh, today. And please stay tuned for more of the Downright Upright show in the near future. Thank you again. And uh, this is your host, Philip Anthony, saying goodbye. And see you soon.